0: There is
1: a growing debate as it relates to electric vehicles, commonly referred to as EVs, when it comes to access and affordability. And with us this morning to talk about this issue is Paula Sardinas, founder of the
2: Washington Build Back Black Alliance. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Chris. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm doing well, and yourself?
2: Happy Friday. <laughs> Thank
1: you very much, Paula. In an op-ed that ran in this week's Seattle Medium, you made the argument for direct sales of EVs in the state of Washington. Um,
2: Can you talk a little bit about this concept and how
1: it could impact underserved communities here in the state of Washington?
2: Absolutely, Chris. So for the past year, I've had the joy of serving as the co-chair to the TES. The TES is the Transportation Electrification Strategy across 39 counties in the state of Washington. And our job is to make sure that we are electrifying the state because, as you know, we passed a bill that says after 2030, um, we will no longer be selling fossil fuel vehicles. The governor wants us to go to electric vehicles. And so as I looked at that, and I I understand the landscape, right, especially in our black and African-American community, um, how we get our transportation. A lot of that is public transportation. It's multimodal. The fact that a lot of people in the African-American community struggle with car ownership because of the structurally racist system of acquiring credit for banks and credit unions. And I thought to myself, some of the most expensive vehicles are electric vehicles. So what are we going to do as a state to make sure that we can meet those adoption requirements? Um, as part of the TES, I've recommended matching incentives. So the federal government gives you a $7,500 rebate. I've required us to be able to match that for people that are low income so that an EV that costs you $26,000 can rebate it, be rebated down to somewhere between ten and 15000 And then we offer additional rebates for people that are living at 80% of AMI. Well, why does that matter? Today, when you go to a car dealership, the data shows us, and we saw this in both um, the NDA data and other articles like Business Insider, what you're really paying for is aftermarket service and dealer add-ons. Well, when you buy an electric vehicle and you can buy directly, there is no service. It's electric. So all of those additional things like oil changes and extended warranties, you won't need that with an electric vehicle. If you're paying 10 to $0.15 cents per kilowatt and unless your vehicle goes 200 or 300 miles, Chris, the cost is about $12 versus the $120 I paid yesterday to fill up my car. And so when a consumer is able to go online, look at their EV, apply their rebate, and know exactly what it's going to cost, and they're able to say, I can go to my bank or my credit union, I can get this loan for $10,000, I'm not going to pay $1 more. I'm not going to be sold any more aftermarket things. That's truly better for consumers, especially in our black and brown communities, where when we look at the data, we know that our car buying experience, when we go into dealers, they range from horrible to terrible, right? And so it is really about equity in this field and making sure something that is designed, um, in particular, to benefit those in, in the central district, and Tacomas Hilltop District, and Burien, in areas where we have the worst air quality and we suffer because of environmental racism and environmental injustice, we need to make sure that those communities are at the forefront of receiving the incentives and the monies associated with converting to electric vehicles. Right. And, Paul, let's talk a little bit about the broader uh,
1: adoption of EVs because there are a few obstacles that people can't. Has to get over, including having their own proper the, their own proper mindset uh, of driving an EV. Certainly, there are those who worry about running out of juice and not having the convenience of just stopping by the nearest gas station to fill up. Uh, but then there are other expenses with EVs, uh, not to mention a limited number of vehicle lines that are produced as an EV as well.
2: Chris, those are very real problems, um, and we're tackling that with the TES, right? And, and I think I was sharing with you. At Tabor 100, Ollie and I have installed two electric charging stations, um, and we're creating a ride program along with um, the Washington African-American Chamber out in eastern Washington. There will also be an electric vehicle at one of your um, YMCA locations in the Central District. All of that was made possible by something called the ZAP grant, which is part of the CCA money. And so we will have things like I've got a Chevy Bolt, um, a Ford F-150. We've got an eight-passenger van with a wheelchair lift. We're rolling those things out to communities of color, you're Right? is is the accessibility. We know that there are not enough charging stations in the grid. Um, There are going to be hundreds of millions and billions of dollars invested. We saw a lot of that money come out in the governor's budget on the 13th of December. This coming month in 2024, um, there will be billions coming to the state of Washington through the IRA, which is one of the most comprehensive environmental justice pieces of legislation ever passed under joe biden but we know that's not enough people have real concerns about am i going to be able to charge my vehicle right now we have a 65 million dollar proposal i think that's out under commerce that will install ev charging stations in low-income housing communities we're looking at where you work where you live where you play i'm putting them in CVS parking lots walmart parking lots safeway your doctor's offices um seattle city light has a program Tesla is offering free charging stations if you have a home or if you rent, and your landlord will allow it. So we're trying to make sure that there is equity in where the charging stations are placed, that we're putting them in underserved communities. Now, I don't personally don't live in an underserved community. I live in Issaquah. But I'll tell you, within my community, we have six charging stations, and they're all free. You don't pay to charge your electric vehicle. Um, if you use my charging station, you know, if you're in our rideshare program, we do allow people to recharge and to use that portal for free. Um, there are some people that do have to pay but it is very like i said it runs them about twelve dollars which is less than what you would cost to fill up a fossil fuel car so a we're looking at that we're also talking directly to oem manufacturers we know that there is a backlog it shouldn't be if you want an electric vehicle the only one you can get is a tesla right you should be able to get the chevy bolt um, and some of the other vehicles we know that rivian makes a pickup truck in a, in a van that is used by a lot of our, our minority business owners because it is considered to be a work truck and you get about 230, to 250 miles on those vehicles, right, if you are, um, you know, in that industry. So we're looking at that. Um, we're making multi-billion-dollar investments. As your co-chair of the TES here in Washington State, I'm examining all of that. Um, we had $200 million in the budget that we withheld. I think you will see people like Chairman uh, Jake Fye and Chairman Marco Leas allocating those dollars in this upcoming session. Uh, through the lens of equity into marginalized communities. But what we really need is, is folks like your listeners um, to be weighing in when we send out surveys through, like, Tabor 100, the Urban Leagues, P-PAC, the NAACP. We need to hear from the black and brown community what do you need, but most importantly, Chris, what do you want? Right. And, Paula, you talked about commercial uh,
1: businesses a little bit. What about commercial business owners who have – uh, fleet of vehicles what are the issues they face when it comes to EVs uh, and how can um, this uh, proposal as you, your, or proposals because what you're talking about is more than really one proposal um, to really address this issue uh, how can those help them overcome uh, some of these obstacles
2: well one of the things that we're looking at mm-hmm. is a lot of our minority business owners right they have fleets and it is simply going to be cost prohibitive to, um to, to decarbonize their fleet to go to electric vehicles because of the cost of the vehicle a lot of these folks are buying secondhand vehicles on um, third and fourth generation because they're buying them used i have recommended and that's why my piece i say the incentives have to be for all vehicles without regard to the cost from the person that's paying twenty six thousand 000 for the chevy bolt to the guy that's paying a million dollars for the motor coach and everyone that falls in between If I am a catering company and I need those vans like the one that I have, I have a a Dodge Ram Promaster that I retrofitted. It cost me $115,000. So if the average business owner doesn't have that, we need to provide enough electric vehicle incentives directly to the OEM, which means directly to the dealership, and the buyer to make that vehicle more affordable. And the way you're able to do that is to allow the consumer, Paula or that small business owner, to negotiate directly with the dealers by removing the middleman to be able to say these are my incentives I need to be able to go directly to the dealer and to say okay this is the price these are the incentives when I get there there isn't going to be any additional add-ons there won't be any additional cost I have this rebate I have this grant this is all I'm going to pay I don't want to be at the dealership for three hours um, or two days on the weekend I just want to go in I want to negotiate directly with the OEM because if I'm buying a fleet of 10 or 20, Chris, I'm going to get a better price. But if I've got to go through a car dealership to buy that fleet and I've got to pay dealer add-on fees and I've got to pay dealer incentives and they're going to sell me all of these aftermarket prices, if I have a fleet of 10 vans, I could be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars more. That's the cost of an FTE. That's the cost of benefits. That someone's 401k, that is generational wealth for that black or or, or minority business. What I'm saying is by allowing our folks to to negotiate directly with dealers, they're going to get better pricing, they're going to get lower pricing, they're going to get bulk pricing, the same way the car dealerships get it. Let consumers enjoy that same protection and those same options for their businesses. Like when you and I go to Costco, right? If I buy toilet paper at Safeway, I'm paying one price. But if I go to Costco and I'm buying in bulk, I'm paying a different price. We want that Costco experience when it comes to EVs. Mm. Um, Paula, let's talk a little bit about
1: the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is uh, you know, why this is uh, uh, po- going to be a major political issue. It's going to be a, a political fight that's probably going to carry on uh, for a few years uh, because nothing in politics really happens overnight unless it's an emergency uh, situation. Um, and, and that really is that the fossil fuel uh, business uh, businesses are big businesses. And there are many businesses tied into this uh, community that are, quote unquote, helping to drive the economy and provide jobs all the way from man- manufacturing these vehicles. And then we've got to talk about the the oil industry, which is benefiting from the gas that's being uh, produced in a, you know, you got steel and metal for engines and everything else. But but can you kind of talk about this uh, a little bit in terms of the just being a, a, a political issue and the things that need to be overcome and why it's important for people in our community to kind of chime in on this now as opposed to waiting, you know, until this thing kind of gets kicked down the road a little bit?
2: absolutely well it, in the Washington Post piece um, it, it, I can I can't say it any better than the auto dealership it. right oh they don't want to change the model um, it threatens their model and this has created generational wealth for their family those dealerships are usually privately owned you know pop owns it then him and the wife and then they pass it on to their kids um, and we do have in Washington uh, a couple of african-american owned dealerships so I want to be you know transparent about that but most of these dealerships are not owned by, by folks that look like you and I and what we need to understand is that when you look at the sales growth 80% of employment growth in places like Colorado increased through EV sales we've had these conversations before with the auto industry um, when Barack Obama was president they didn't want to take the haircut and they didn't want to make any changes I mean they always screamed this is going to put us out of business until it didn't innovation and change saved the auto industry and it saved those union jobs at Renton Technical College, we have black and brown students that are currently being trained to work on these vehicles. Without a college degree, Chris, those jobs pay 40 to $56 an hour. That's life-changing in our community. So do we want to support big oil or do we want to bring those dollars home to our own kids and create that long-term generational wealth and employment because someone's going to have to repair these vehicles? Sixty-three Washington auto dealers sent a letter to President Biden and told him to slow down the EV mandate. I'll send you the letter. My response to President Biden was, what do they have to hide other than their own greed, their own structural and systemic racism, and their own wealth? We understand they generate a lot of dollars. We understand those dollars end up in political campaigns and coffers. And sometimes our politicians vote their interest and not the interest of their constituents. The small mom-and-pop franchise dealerships of yesterday are now billion dollar enterprises. We're talking about human lives in the nexus between environmental justice and racism versus capitalism. And we know when that happens, black and brown people lose. And so it isn't going to impact your manufacturing job. Ford, who makes an $80,000 electric F-150 will still be making that. Guess what, the fossil fuel F-150 also costs $80,000 it is the same vehicle the only difference is when you lift up the hood there is no engine that requires all that maintenance it's a battery so it is better for the consumer jobs are not going to go away innovation will change your grandkids will be able to do these jobs they won't work for the eight nine and twelve dollars an hour that we work for chris they'll get 56. so we're talking about generational wealth we're talking about a path to a trade We're talking about a way to lift our community and our kids out of poverty while at the same time we are reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which is causing asthma, respiratory disease, and killing our community. And I'm speaking to you as a 51-year-old black woman who had pneumonia for the past two weeks who was on two emergency rescue inhalers because I was born with asthma. I don't want that for my grandchildren. Removing all of these fossil fuel vehicles off of the roads Taking away billions of dollars from Exxon and and BP oil also means that when the children in the CID go outside to play, they are not breathing in 54% more bad particulate matter than any other group or race or class of people, guaranteeing that they're going to live three to five years less. That's not what Paula says. That's what the data shows. And so this is really about the nexus of saving lives, environmental justice, and making sure we are not late adopters to innovation, that we're early adopters, that our black churches, that our, our civic organizations, that our businesses own those charging stations. Because, Chris, think about it like this. When everybody has an electric vehicle, if you have a church or you have a property or you have a CBO and you put charging stations in and people are stopping and swiping and they're paying, you know, even though it's not as much money, they're paying, they're paying for that kilowatt. Every dollar and every swipe goes back into that community. And so when gas stations in 20, 30, 40 years are replaced and they all have these electric charging stations, the question we should be asking as a black community is who is going to own them. We're working to put some into Burbar Place and other traditional black CDOs because we understand this also creates a line of income in our community. People will need to swipe their credit cards to recharge their battery. The question we need to ask is where is that revenue going to come from? We see white industry and white organizations purchasing land, gobbling up all of the charging stations. We cannot afford to be late adopters in this game because Chris is coming.
1: Uh, well, Paula, I want to thank you for joining us on today's show. Thank you for bringing this information to our community. I'm sure a lot of people are, have been enlightened and really are uh, wanting to seek out more information about this uh, EV um, conversion uh, debate. Um, that's taking place right now Um, and so I would encourage people to read your uh, op-ed in this week's Seattle Medium newspaper or also check it online at seattlemedium.com and certainly love to have you back on uh, to talk a little bit more about this issue.
2: Anytime Chris And, and they have my information they can contact me if they have any questions about the test if they have questions about grants if you have questions about incentives if you have questions about rebates we are here to make sure that the community gets that information please reach out to us and we're happy to provide the information. All right.